Hello there and welcome to another episode of Thought Architecture. And so today's one is quite interesting because actually uh, I've had this conversation with multiple people multiple times and I kind of touched on this a little bit in the past and so I thought I'd dedicate an entire episode to this. So this episode is dedicated to the 10 areas of life that I believe that I've researched, that I've based my opinions upon, that seem to make a difference when it comes to living into fulfillment, living into healthy, happy, productive lifestyles, and um, making sure that these areas are catered for, taken care of, because any one of these areas out of, out of um, synchronicity can really bring a lot of peril a lot of doom, doom, doom. And so without further ado, let's get into it. Because what I will do is actually, um, inside this episode, talk about these 10 areas. Yes, the 10 different areas. And then afterwards, um, we'll discuss each area on the particular points that have been found to be like some of the, the biggest points within each area. Okay, so uh, let me not waste any time. The, there are three filters that I will also filter this information through. So one of them is my filter of negative one, zero, plus one. And what do I mean by this? Negative one means that you're in a space where you're not stabilized. You're, you're in a space where you're hurting, you're traumatized, whatever. Zero just means that you've recovered from that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've got excess energy or anything like that. So usually, you know, like after you recovered, you're, you're set again. You're Imagine it kind of like a credit card and you've just paid off your credit card, you're back at zero, but you don't have any savings in the bank. So you can't exactly go on a spending spree once you return to zero. So zero is like kind of like a, a, an exhale period, you know, just relax, just take it easy, allow some more time, build up some strength and then go hit it again. And then of course the plus one is then the savings. So there's that. Another filter that I'm going to run all of this through is then going to be the short-term solutions versus the long-term solutions. Because, of course, we can all say, well, if you want happiness, just eat a whole bunch of chocolates. Yes, short-term solution, fantastic. Long-term type 2 diabetes developed, mm, not such a great idea, you know. And so the interchange, the interplay between long-term strategies and short-term strategies are very important. And if you're in the mental model world with crowds, you know, flexing hard about like mental models, they'll talk about first order and second order thinking and all that means is first order thinking is the initial effect that something has yeah, yeah i eat a bunch of chocolates the initial effect that it has is i'm happy second order thinking is based on the the result of that the consequence the longer term things and so what we're talking about here you eat a bunch of chocolates sure you feel happy but in the long run you start picking up weight your body starts like uh, you know adapting to that much sugar in its system by responding with insulin dumps etc etc and you can carry on going with like third order thinking fourth order thinking etc but just suffice it to say it's enough right now to just go for short term and long term and of course longer term and longest term and all of that can be built into that the third and final one is then the drive from fragility over to resiliency to transcendence and what do i mean by that so um we'll dig into this in each of the parts but let's stay with the idea of uh let's say eating chocolate okay so fragility is the idea of like well personally myself like i can't eat dairy without feeling first order effects like yes it tastes good but my nose gets blocked up like almost instantly you know like my throat feels all mucusy like i don't really enjoy eating chocolates um, for the effect it has the initial effect it has short-term thinking right longer term thinking as well is that this idea is that because i avoid 
my body being able to adapt to these types of things, I actually, as a result of this, I become more fragile, more sensitive to it. So an avoidance breeds a sensitivity to it as well versus building up the capacity to resist these types of things. So in our chocolate example, it might be more appropriate to talk about the the ability to resist the allure of chocolate because i mean if you eat poison you're eating poison so like we can get into the debate of sugars and things like that you know not being good for you and so your body's never going to adapt in a positive way to to that type of thing but um i think you see my point the idea is building up a resistance to it and then just transcending the problem altogether you know so i can transcend the problem altogether by just never feeling the need to eat chocolate ever again which is thankfully thanks to my wonderful wife is something i can i can say all right so without further ado let's get into it so the the 10 categories as i'm about to dump them are there are five that go for the physical there are three that go for the mental quote-unquote mental you'll see when we get there and there are two that which go for like let's say the existential the spirit you know there are things that are a lot more difficult to manage far more perception based okay so again that's five three and two which makes a total of 10 of course so breaking all five physical down it's going to be sleep movement nutrition stillness and breath okay the three quote-unquote mental are social emotional and uh, cognitive and then the two existential are uh, agency and legacy okay so let's go into each one very quickly and just talk about like a point or two with each so the physical i've uh, it's it's been quite easy to to research some of the physical stuff. There's a ton of information out there. The difficulty has been discerning what actually matters and what doesn't because people tend to make up their own rules when it comes to what proof you need. Oh, this is intuition-based. This is based on evidence. And they don't separate out, let's say, the um, the the placebo element of things. They don't they don't separate out what, what could be just... Um, people doing it themselves versus the system you know and really separating out the signal from the noise and the confounding variables from the truth and so you know we can take an inductive reasoning approach where we just try and look at all of it and and, um, apply it as best as we can to our lives try and look at previous examples apply it as best to our lives suffice it to say there is a human mechanic that everybody responds to and the more specific we go into the type of human into your history of being a human the more we can personalize as well so we're going for these overarching generalized human mechanics we're not going for the specialized mechanics okay so that being said let's dive into that so with sleep um you know once again this is this idea of if you are in a negative one space sleep will affect you greatly but to go to a plus one space um if you're getting best quality sleep versus just okay sleep it's not going to be such a dramatic increase in your performance but to go from terrible sleep to just okay sleep you're you're going to notice a a marvelous a magnificent increase in performance and this is what i think um, most of these come out to it's to get to the elite level you're looking at the difference between like 0.5% and 0.6% in terms of performances and uh, how much you're getting out of life versus if you're not hitting these criteria for any one of these topics, you are going to notice a drastic decrease in your life. Okay, so for sleep, what is it? Okay, well, it seems that for most people on a carbohydrate-rich diet, so you're looking at about... Um, you know, between uh, five cycles of sleep a night, so 35 a week, which a cycle of sleep is about 90 minutes. So we're looking at um, between 
seven and a half, uh, seven and a half, yes, to nine hours of sleep is is ultimately what most people are going for the seven and a half hour time slot and don't forget that's not exactly time in bed that's time from falling asleep so sleep onset sleep quality sleep duration all very important factors here right how fast you fall asleep what's the quality of your sleep how long do you sleep that's very very important i've noticed myself when i've been in states of uh, deep ketosis that is if you're a nerd and you've measured it like uh, i'm talking about approximately between three and five millimoles per liter of you know um, ketones the idea is that uh, your body actually just wakes you up with little puffs of adrenaline after about six hours. Like you don't need that much sleep because, well, to be f- um, to be clear, I was fasting at the time, and that's why I was in a state of ketosis as well. So this being said, you, it's easy to see there's a complex system weaving where there's a relationship already between food and sleep. That's easy. Right? There's a relationship between activity and sleep. We know this. And that's why each one of these areas is important and special and we must blend it all together. So that being said, sleep, what are the, what are the, the good kind of pointers to get to? It's making sure that morning light hits your eyes, that evening light hits your eyes. I would stay away from things like uh, blue blockers because there's not much data on it. And a lot of the data skews it in order to uh, sell blue blockers a lot of the time. As well as the idea that um, if you stop a blue light entering your eyes, you're also sensitizing yourself as well. And so there is this kind of thing to say. But blue blockers tend to be worn by people who try to optimize, where your foundational principal ideas about this type of thing tends to be more like, what are you eating? When are you eating? What's your activity levels? What are your rest levels? What's your breathing like? Um, How much time do you have in bed? What times are you going to bed? Regularity tends to be a big factor with regard to uh, go to sleep times, wake up times, okay? Uh, Making sure that you're catching the last light of the day and the first light of the day as well um, has a major effect on the brain. And there are like a few other um, points to consider when it comes to sleep. But obviously, if you've got major issues, you won't be listening to this podcast. If you've got major issues in sleep, don't take your advice from me. Go and speak to a sleep professional, go and download books and things like that. There's lots of options available for you as well as YouTube. So that being said, um, sleep, major, major thing. Um, I do believe the idea of going to a plus one phase of sleep is very healthy. For example, can you imagine falling asleep on a floor and being comfortable? What sleeping position means that you can sleep without anything? That's that's quite a big deal, you know. Being able to sleep anywhere, despite the light in the room, despite the noise in the room, is something that I noticed when I was in Thailand. Is Thai people had the amazing ability to fall asleep on command at will wherever they were, like sleeping upright and things like that. And I thought I would love to be able to do that. And so I started practice napping, and napping has been a game changer for me. It's been amazing, and I can take. Um, 10 minute naps and feel absolutely recovered sometimes it's a 20 minute nap and i feel great sometimes it's a 40 minute nap and i feel refreshed but still a bit groggy but still good and so there are connections between napping and learning as well which is incredible now it's not the purpose of this podcast to go into sleep in particular we've spent a lot of time on it already but just to demonstrate some of the factors that go into it to just say it's not a simple topic and when we understand systems thinking we need to understand all the things that integrate into the system the mechanics of the system as well and so to just say that there's like a this works or this doesn't work that's false it doesn't work like that so that being said um, let's move on to food so obviously nutritional deficiencies mm, big problem you know making sure that you're eating food is the number one most important rule and when i put that on my tiktok some some guy was like what the hell are you talking about eat food 
Uh, I really enjoyed Michael Pollan's book, um, Food Rules, where he gives 64 different rules for eating food. I don't agree with all of them, but I think it's as simple as you make it. You know, the idea is all the research, there's uh, systems with regard to this type of thing. You know, eat modestly, um, eat in a variety. Um, but one of the biggest things is make sure you're getting food. Eat food, right? And what does that mean? Well, he makes a distinction between food and food-like substances. So if you're eating cakes, it's a food-like substance, not a food. If you're eating vegetables, well, that's a food. You can identify it as food, etc. So like the closest, the most natural thing. Think about, um, you know, if you were eating before um, any kind of civilization popped up, you'd be eating such a close meal to you know, what it looks like in the wild. And that's pretty much it. And making sure you're eating in the right ratios as well. There's a ratio, there's a hierarchy, or obviously your proteins to your vegetables. I'm not talking about if it fits your macro, what's your calorie count, like throw those ideas out of the window and just go for good quality nutritional content. You know, so as good as you can get is the best. Um, I've noticed that I respond well to particular things. You know, I I don't necessarily respond well to fish. I still feel hungry, but lamb fantastic you know beef etc so i i do enjoy those kind of things a lot more whereas other people are enzymatically adapted to actually digest other things a lot better uh, I, I tend to do very well on rice um, but i'm celiac as well i'm celiac so that means that any gluten so pizzas pastries things like that i don't do well with and so again we're talking about this idea of the more you hammer your system with bad things the more your system's going to get out of sync. And so the more sensitive you are to random things as well. So my celiac was actually triggered by a poor diet as well. And now I can tolerate small amounts of it and things like that. So you build it up. But you also just like get to a point where you realize, well, I mean, gluten in and of itself as a wheat protein is it's not good for you. Okay. So food, great. Um, so those are the easy ones. Sleep, food, movement is another easy one. If we're talking about purposes, I think you should you should also understand that we're talking about purposes here. So if your purpose for exercise is to get big versus l- live long and healthily, you know, there's there's all these different types of things that can be arranged. So I would say that even within, um, as we're talking about physical movement, we can talk about movement complexity like dance or martial arts where you have to coordinate your body. You know, so there's a lot of pillars like this. Then we've got strength and conditioning as well where we're talking about muscular, skeletal muscular um, strength based on levers, based on tendons, etc. Um, if we're talking about the brain and we're talking about optimizing health for the brain, there is nothing better than cardio. Cardio is incredible. Like the more that your heart is is uh, adapted to pumping blood around your body, uh, the better you're going to think. That's what all the studies suggest. So, I, again, it's the same thing that moving your body is going to be good for you, but if you're in a place where you've never moved your body and you start moving your body, you're going to notice dramatic effects. But if you're moving your body already and you start like getting maximum efficiency with all your exercises, you're not going to notice as much of an increase as just going from not focusing on it to focusing on it. So that being said, I think I think a couple of key areas are and that I like a lot are going to be number one, strength training. I really like it. I think it's I think it's a health benefit. Um, I'm not going to talk about how to do it or anything like that. It's out of my realm, out of my lane. I think flexibility training. A lot of the studies are incredibly compelling about longevity, about just overall health and stress and its effect on stress. 
Um, I'm not necessarily talking about yoga. Um, your flexibility is one component of yoga, so please be careful Pilates as well. It's not primarily flexibility. It's also a strength, a strength training. It's an isometric strength, you know, things like that. So movement complexity. So I would consider yoga to be more of like a sports class or something like that than anything else. Um, and then, yeah, cardio, cardio for the brain. So there we go. So we've got sleep, food, or nutrition. Uh, we've got movement. Uh, the two that I find underrated with physicality is going to be uh, breathing. So just covering breathing quickly, depending on what you're breathing for. Um, the de-stress breath is the one that most people don't know about, which is taking a longer exhalation than an inhalation. It's usually a two-to-one ratio. So inhale for four, exhale for eight. Uh, following uh, Patrick McKeown's protocols of uh, light soft and deep so light breaths um, that you can barely hear very soft that that barely even ruffles the the nose hairs and then very deep so it goes into your stomach you're breathing into your stomach rather than your chest the lower lobes of the lungs get activated and that type of breathing and steady rhythmical breathing like that really promotes a lot of health um so that's a big one and sitting there for about 10 minutes of breathing like that your heart rate variability will of course go up which means that your body recognizes that you're in a state that you're not stressed out that you're not being chased by a line or whatever it affects sleep it affects affects digestion needless to say sleep if you're getting poor quality sleep your insulin sensitivity goes up which means that you eat a candy bar uh, chocolate or something like that and um, if you've slept versus if you haven't slept you'll have very different responses in your body well you'll have a terrible response if you haven't slept the same to be said cognitively if you if you haven't slept in uh, an 18 hour stretch you will notice severe cognitive impairment and that's what all the data shows so there's a lot there's a lot to be said here the one that i like uh, as well is stillness and there's so many forms of stillness prayer is one quiet contemplation people watching meditation whatever you want to say and there's multiple forms of all of those as well um it's just to say that allowing some time for the brain to not have stimulus and to just calm down. And so consider as much as you're providing your body with movement, also have times where you don't move. As much as you're eating, have times where you don't eat. As much as you're sleeping, have times where you don't sleep as well. You know, and it becomes very important to kind of go through a cycle of these things and notice which ones in your life um, are having the greatest impact on you. All right. Um, if you're interested in some stillness tracks, go to Insight Timer. Um, I've got a couple up there. I've got one called the Smile Bank, which hits emotions. I've got another one called the uh, HRV Breath, which obviously focuses on the things I've been talking about. And uh, I've got another one, uh, which is based on a cognitive approach as well, which is called the um, the Meta Emotional Scale. Okay, but let's uh, let's dig into uh, the others very quickly. I think. Um, this, this episode is going to be a little bit longer than normal. So we're at the, about the 20-minute mark, um, and we've just finished the first five. So we're going to go for another 20 minutes and finish the next five. Okay, so now is a good time to pause or take a break if you don't want to go through a full 40 minutes. Uh, but for the sake of this, I'm going to continue. All right. So moving on, our three quote-unquote mental. I say mental because people have a particular connotation to the word mental. But one of the biggest things that drives our brain is that the human brain is social. That is one of the deepest and biggest factors about our brain. We are social animals. We seek out 
validation, social approval, especially in places where we don't feel confident. We resort to, um, we're very susceptible to peer pressure if we don't have a lot of confidence. We're very susceptible to others' opinions. Um, there are numerous studies that show our relationships with others actually affect us greatly, greatly. And not just that, our brain waves tend to synchronize with people that um, gives credence to the saying, we're on the same wavelength. It's literally your brains are actually on the same wavelength. So all that being said, it's, uh, it's very important to take into account that we are social animals. I highly recommend Richard Crisp's book, um, The Social Brain. Very, very, very cool book. I'll, I'll put a link below. Um, yeah, I love, I love it. It was a, it, it's probably like the most uh, important book with regard to shaping your understanding of how social you are. So straight away, if you look at the educational system, the way that they set things up, especially um, you know in most countries, in most educational institutions, not all, please don't quote me on that, but they, they set it up where an individual is primed for success based on their own abilities, not based on their abilities necessarily in a group. There are some teamwork projects and things like that, but I mean, ultimately, when you sit down and you take your exams and you think of how heavily exam is weighted, they actually don't count your performance in a group, how well you perform with a group. I know some people who actually think better when they're in a group. Um, if you've ever had a session where you're trying to work through a problem and you just talk it out with another person, even though that person's doing nothing, you automatically feel better, number one. And number two, you've probably heard yourself aloud trying to convince this other person and you actually realize, huh, okay, I see the solution. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. And the person's like, what? I, I did nothing. There are so many factors that come in with this. We can talk about cognitive biases as well that kick in. And a cognitive bias, all it is is it's a way for your brain to make sure that you're not kicking yourself when you're down, fooling yourself into thinking that you are better than you are so that you can get validation from the social groups. Like seriously, all of this is largely hierarchically, the brain is dominantly social. And then after that, we can talk about emotions and how important emotions are. Now, with regard to social structures, it's very important that you are valued and that you value others. Now, when it comes to emotions, we can find ways to do that. But one of the best ways is just, of course, giving. Giving more than receiving. Just just give and allow others to give back to you. You know, allow reciprocity because it's very important. Um, with emotions, there's an interesting way to do this. So I'm a huge fan of Barbara Fredrickson's um, broaden and build theory, which focuses on four primary emotions, which are um, curiosity, which leads you to explore. It's joy, which leads you to play. It's um, savoring, you know, the uh, the verb is savor. Um, it's going to be, no, I suppose we could also say savoring is the, uh, the emotion. And what we do is we stop and we... Um, we take count of our blessings, basically. It's, it's a form of gratitude as well. And then the last one is then sharing, sharing anything. So I highly, highly, highly um, encourage you to find curiosities that you're interested in, things that you wish to explore, and share that with people. Uh, create games around it where you can play and do all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, finally, making sure that you're stopping and just pausing the moment and just enjoying yourself, taking stock of everything and appreciating everything. Um, that being said, 
Um, if you want more, there's this um, previous podcast, the most emotional musculature podcast was a good one on this as well, which dives deeper into this, these emotional muscles. There's also a lot to be said about um, the, the mix now that goes from emotional into cognitive. The way that the brain is structured is we've got our brainstem, our limbic system, you know, the, the, the main part of the brain, and then we've got the neocortex, the, the more evolved part of the brain. The neocortex, actually part of the central executive network, is about uh, regulating the other two parts. Like literally we have an impulse control mechanism built into the brain. And so when you feel a particular emotion, your ability to step outside yourself, suppress that emotion is important because that's actually part of our, you know, evolved, quote-unquote, brain. And so in saying all of this, the very simple idea is that um, there is a crossover and part of your emotional sides is also being able to regulate your emotions. It's also being able to, um, to recognize your emotions when you're in the moment, step out of your emotions or um, not necessarily alienate your emotions. You know, toxic positivity is this idea of like always being positive no matter what, even if you're feeling something different. Something like that, out of alignment, it is toxic, you know, um, versus, okay, well, I'm sad. Well, give voice to being sad. Don't necessarily identify with it and, and be like, okay, cool. Well, let me feel it until it's gone and let me do things that honor that until it's gone and whatever, you know, in healthy ways, identify what it is, how to deal with it and move on. Once we've got that, so we move into the, the, the neocortex and we're talking about cognitive skills. Now, the huge, huge, huge thing to say with cognitive skills is that we're not talking about being like super geniuses or things like that. We're talking about a couple of basic ideas. Basic idea number one is that you've got a brain manager called the working memory. And getting to grips with the working memory and identifying what is the working memory, how to train the working memory, can actually change a lot of false beliefs that we hold inside our mind um, that govern us, that make us feel particular things. Now, the mechanism is, is inaccurate. The amount of people who say, oh, I'm just not good at languages. No, you haven't been told how languages work, how you're supposed to learn them. You've been learning them according to a model that is wrong in schools and education systems. So according to that model, you create a belief, okay? And this comes back again to the social idea. There's something called the Pygmalion effect. Um, and again, I highly encourage you to take a look at the uh, previous podcasts if you want more of this kind of stuff. Um, the human operating system actually goes in detail into these three as well. So working memory is a big one for the uh, cognitive aspect of our, our mental category. And one of the biggest things with, with this, with working memory, is then being able to outsource your working memory, not overload your working memory, by having the correct schema, which is literally a little mental map of how something works. So that as soon as you see something, you recognize which piece of the puzzle it is, and you throw it into your brain, into that category, into that box. So you don't actually need uh, that piece of information to exist alone in your working memory, burning all your energy, trying to figure out where does it fit. Okay, so that's quite important. And it's very important that we get the right schema because the wrong schema creates, again, uh, cognitive dissonance, which actually burdens you. It overwhelms the working memory. It means that we reach overwhelm of working memory, which usually in turn leads to a lot of stress, a lot of stress, which usually means to over, uh, leads to overwhelm. Uh, and again, overwhelm is very unproductive. It means that you shut 
down your system. What I've noticed with people with working memory is when I challenge them, let's say giving them a string of numbers to remember, um, they'll get to a point where they remember, you know, like six numbers, seven numbers, but as soon as we hit eight or nine, instead of remembering like six numbers and then they miss, let's say, two or, or seven numbers and they miss one or two, they'll actually miss all the numbers. Their success rate goes from like mostly to almost nothing. They'll remember like one number correct. And it's the idea of overwhelm. The brain just throws its hands up and says like, fuck this shit, can't do it. And, and you can't retain anything when you're in those overwhelmed spaces. So cognitively, cognitive overwhelm, working memory, largely connected. And one of the big parts about schema and creating schema is the investigation, the curiosity that we talked about with emotional categories as well. And so again, we see these types of things. Another thing to mention here is how food influences working memory. Uh, the conversion of um, memories from short-term memory to long-term memory occurs with the relationship between the neocortex and the hippocampus, and that can be blocked by alcohol by gluten you know in some people depends on what you're sensitive to and so the 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 actual mechanisms that are naturally at work can be hugely affected when something is out of balance you know sleep largely affects cognitive ability as well where they say um you know the the results are better from having a good night's sleep before an exam than actually cramming for that exam so there's a lot to be said about that so moving on um, in saying that, we've got the ability for us to contextualize information as well and determine context is one of the foremost important parts of cognitive ability. Can you contextualize information coming in? How fast you do it can mean the difference between uh, you know, uh, someone being praised as a fast learner, as a genius or whatever, versus just a regular person. If it takes you 20 tries before you understand something versus one or two before you understand something. And this is largely based on your ability to just compare it to other schemas. So contextualization schema largely fits together. There is a great psychologist who works out of uh, Australia who created something called the Cognitive Fitness Framework. And he trains military personnel in this. And some of these things are just incredible. And Part of this is also the ability to tolerate certain things. So one of the things he talks about with mental muscles, let's say cognitive fitness, is going to be uh, monotony tolerance. So if anyone's ever told you, oh, don't do these things, they're boring, they're beneath you, you're worth much more money, don't wash your own dishes, your, your um, wage per hour is much higher than that of a dishwasher, so pay someone else to wash dishes and then you can get back to work earning even more money. You know, yes, that's true. And if you're in it for cognitive fitness, washing the dishes will increase your ability to tolerate monotony, which is very important as well. So a lot of these high-performing professionals are shit when it comes to patience. They just don't have the patience for things because they haven't trained themselves necessarily in monotony tolerance. So there's a whole host of other things that go together here, which is very important. But suffice it to say, if we go for working memory balance, if we go for schema and schema helps you and as well helps itself with contextualization, your ability to contextualize something. And a lot of that comes from your ability to actually deconstruct something as well, go slower. Um, there are many, many cognitive muscles that we can talk about as well. But for now, short, sweet, I think you get the point. Excellent, excellent. 
We're doing well. Two more to go. Two more to go. And so these are the two existential. And I call these the two existential because we can't exactly put these two down because they affect everyone. It's They're not physical things. They're not necessarily cognitive, emotional, social things. They're just things that exist. And they're very different for each person. So you've probably heard of these in some form of another. But one of them is... How much independence do you have in your life? How much control do you have over your own life? So I call it agency. I used to call it sovereignty, but yeah, let's just say that uh, people had a hard time understanding that one. Agency seems to be a term that a lot of people use. But the idea if you believe that you are in charge of your own life, if you are making your own life choices, or you believe you have enough control in the choices that are being made around you, you automatically feel more comfortable, more at ease, your stress goes down, your thinking ability goes up, you know, exercise is all balanced out. As soon as you start feeling some kind of sense of you don't have control over your own life, you don't have control over your own money or things like that, everything else will suffer. It'll take all that extra energy to be able to do everything else. So that's why people usually shoot for the dream of being a millionaire so they can quit their job and take control of their lives. It's not true, of course, you know, Taking control of your life has got nothing to do with money. It's got to do with a sense of perception of, do I have control? So if I choose to work at a company and they give me money in exchange, you know, versus, oh, I have to work at a company. And so you've heard that cheesy thing. Oh, you don't, you don't have to do it. You get to do it. You know, like, yeah, it's cheesy. I punch people when they say that kind of crap to me. But the truth is, is that creating a mindset around agency is very important. And so... Again, it's investigating the parts of your life where you are minus one, where you feel you have no agency. And what does short-term agency look like? And what does long-term agency look like? And a lot of the time, increasing our agency over everything is actually going to create fragility. If, like you, if you're able to control absolutely everything in your life, usually you become very fragile and you're not very tolerant. You can't tolerate a lot of change in your life as well. You seek to stabilize absolutely everything. There was a great part of Castlevania where they talked about the uh, vampire's um, philosophy. And basically the idea is if you're an undying vampire alive for hundreds and thousands of years, uh, because change for you occurs in tens, decades, uh, hundreds of years, you'll try and create as much stability as possible over hundreds of years. And that usually means that they became like rulers and lords that enforced a particular law for hundreds of years. And so why? The need to create stability. Why? The drive for agency. So this drive for agency is very important. And so, you know, ask yourself questions like in which situations do you actually need to have a certain amount of control? And usually that's informed a lot by your, you know, your trauma and your past and things like that. But, you know, largely, the more you can step away and say, I've got agency in this, I don't need to take a lot of control. I already feel like no matter who is uh, driving, that I've got good control. That's important. And so like the more we can also encourage this feeling in other people, the more relaxed they are, the more they would be willing to let you uh, take some risks with the team, with uh, a business idea or something like that. So agency, that's a big deal. And the last one to discuss. The last one to discuss is legacy. Now, when it comes to legacy, (laughs) I must reference... uh, Mark Manson, I'm currently reading his book with a friend of mine, and he talks about something called the uncomfortable truth, which is that everyone is going to die. And save a few people, everything that you do 
will matter not in the long term. You know, in terms of the universe and relative, um, you know, relative meaning, relative lifespan of of something that's, you know, on a galactic scale, like humans mean nothing. There's nothing that you or I do that's really going to have any significant impact. So almost like, why bother? And this uncomfortable truth means like, well, what do you want to do with your time? You know, how do you want to leave things? What kind of marks do you want to leave? What things do you want to do? And a lot of the time, legacy is also based on um, the people with great legacies are usually people who are thinking about others. Like, how can I make life better for others? How can I do things that is going to benefit other people? Um, and that's a big deal. So one, of, one, one quick example of this is that the, the language boot camps that I've been running is based on a decades-long um, pursuit journey of a better language learning system than what is currently being presented in schools and private language institutes online with polyglots all of that because um, there's all these holes that I perceive in there um, and there's ways to be much more efficient and effective and enjoyable with language learning now that all being said you know it's not a great business model people don't pay thousands of dollars for language learning and if they do they expect a ton out of it they expect a huge exchange and so you get this mcdonald's form of language learning mostly um so yeah i could charge a a ton for it but i'd rather proliferate proliferate the ideas out there into the universe so that um you know people communicate and can connect much more and so the the legacy that i would like to have has actually overridden my my business savvy my business choices of like, well, what should I do with business? Well, you know, there it is. The business is overridden because, you know, my need for helping others takes control. So, you know, the legacy is largely one about linguistics, language learning, you know, and being able to approach something much, much, much better, which is, of course, the entire purpose of a, uh, a podcast like this, you know, something like this. It's all about helping improve the mind, systems thinking and all that. And so we come around again. All of these can be viewed through the lens of minus one, zero, and plus one. If you are in a place where you are suffering, you need to stabilize. And implementing a measure, which is a short-term versus a long-term measure, and a mix of both is always healthy. So for example, oh, I can't tolerate gluten. Fine, short-term, cut out gluten long-term slowly introduce healthy forms of gluten so that you can tolerate it if you have to but obviously don't go out there trying to seek um getting back to really bad habits same thing with learning you know short term yes you can put in 15 hours a day of learning for a week congratulations but you're going to burn out because uh the more consistency we have the better so a mixture of that consistency plus intensity is great so the long-term solution is usually better but to really get the ball rolling, you can take a short-term measure. So think about building up a skill, something like um, building up to a pull-up could take a ton of time. Let's, let's just imagine 20 hours of workouts to build up to your first pull-up. But once you've got your first pull-up, it actually takes like two minutes per workout per week to just maintain that level that you've achieved. And so we've got the idea of like activation energy or startup energy versus maintenance energy and that should inform the views on short-term versus long-term thinking as well so 
that's it. Um, the other thing to, to mention is just to remind you that we can also talk about what measures you put in place. Are they creating you to be sensitive and, and therefore fragile to a particular thing versus um, a little bit more resilient? So for example, I can now, after three years of practice, let's say, quote-unquote practice, I can nap almost any time of day and it not affect my sleep. I can nap in almost any room and on any surface as well. There are a few surfaces, like really hard surfaces, that still affect me a little bit. Um, but it depends on also the position I'm lying in, the angles, all that kind of stuff. But it's fair enough to say that I'm, I'm pretty resilient. I haven't quite transcended all environmental factors when it comes to sleep. But, uh, you know, I am my own sleep hero. <laughs> so... If you found this interesting, uh, please, you know, share this with with uh, someone you love, with someone you know, and begin a conversation. That is ultimately the goal of all of this. Um, I'd love to get some some more followers, and I'd love to get some some more interaction from people. I, of course, do hear from you. I love you very much. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, mom. <laughs> but uh, I would love to 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 hear what questions you may have or what things you would like to to hear on this podcast as well perhaps a format that you that you enjoy that you you think would work well for this um, as we grow and um, yes please reach out to me you can find me I think the easiest is probably going to be Instagram at Justin Nope so that's J-U-S-T-I-N-N-O-P-P-E or Juliet Uniform uh, Sierra Tango, India, November, November. Oscar, Papa, Papa, Echo. I, I just wanted to do that. I know you probably didn't need it, but I, I enjoyed it. Was it good for you? Uh, yes. So that's it. That's it for today. I uh, hope you are all well, that you have a fantastic week. Reach out to me if you have any questions. And I can't wait to speak to you all again. Ciao, ciao.